You're listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm Brandon, and I'm here with Isha. Today we have Corey Robin, the professor and author of multiple books, including The Reactionary Mind and, most recently, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, here to talk to us about the political history and ideology of the Obamanauts. So just a little bit about you, Corey, for maybe listeners who are not familiar. You're a professor at Brooklyn College? I am, yep. And what do you teach? I teach political theory and political science, you know, modern political thought, intro political thought, that kind of stuff. I'm actually not familiar. Like, what exactly is modern political thought? Oh, it's um, basically Machiavelli forward. And then there's some disagreement about whether it includes 20th century and contemporary stuff. But it's the Renaissance onward, basically. Oh, I see. Well, I really enjoyed the insight from a reactionary mind. And I loved your article on The Descent magazine. It's called The Obama Knots. So can you explain the title? Why do you call them The Obama Knots? I guess it captures a couple of things. One is that The Obama Knots is a group of people who were in the Obama administration and who have since written memoirs, essentially, or reminiscences of their time in the Obama administration. And I was asked to write a review of all of these memoirs. So it's a distinct genre of literature. And it's the, the phrase Obamanauts is just first and foremost meant to capture a, a cohort of people who have um, a pretty similar sensibility, a pretty similar class position and set of aspirations and values. And, and that leads to, to the second meaning of the term, there's a kind of otherworldly quality to these people. They have very high aspirations and, and, and a kind of a very high-flown rhetoric about what it is that they think they achieved and they did and what they were trying to do in the Obama administration. But there's something uh, a little bit ungrounded about it all, as I tried to explain. Um, so to me, the, the phrase Obamanauts kind of captured this idea of these people who are circling around the stars and in the skies with no real apparent direction and and very little sense of grounding. I only kind of read Dan Pfeiffer's memoir. And what I'm alarmed with, with the when I first read your article, is the number of memoirs that have the word West Wing in the title. Yeah. So, um, you know, the West Wing for, I, mean, I guess most people know what that is, but it was this very popular TV show that depicted uh, a fictional American president who was from, some, you know, from New England um, and was liberal and very high-minded and was able to give these very powerful speeches um, and was always wrestling with what's thought to be, I guess, the quintessential political problem of, you know, aspiring to do the right thing but having to deal with messy political realities. That is what... Please excuse me if um, I interrupt because sometimes I get heated by this. And that's what I really am very annoyed by these Obama knots because 
they have convinced themselves of a fake political reality where the morally incorrect action is somehow seen as more realistic and practical. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes even further than that. Oftentimes they think that a sense of compromise, it's not just, they talk about it at two levels. One is the way you're describing, that the compromise is realistic and is practical and so on and so forth. But they, and people can debate that, you know, that's a legit, that's always a... It depends on what you're compromising. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, you know, but this is, you know, that is a traditional political question of how to, you know, reconcile um, your aspirations and ends with the, the realities of political life. That's fine. But they elevate that that sense of compromise into the, as if somehow they're these kind of noble warriors and that there's something elevated about their sense of reality that, you know, the rest of us don't have on the one hand. And so there's this weird overblown rhetoric that they use to describe, you know, that sense of reality and, and practicality and compromise on the one hand. But then on the other hand, I mean, if you want to go, if, if, if you want to take that stand, fine, but then they get super angry with the Republicans for not being fair with them um, so that they, you know, they're, they, the Obamanots are willing to compromise and meet them halfway. And the Republicans consistently, you know, do the thing, the Lucy with the football. Where they move the other half, halfway on the other side. Right. And the failure of the Republicans to meet them halfway, rather than coming to terms with that, these Obamanots, they just, they, they lament it and they, they act, you know, they, they accuse the other side of not being fair and of being irresponsible and so forth. And it's, it's, and it starts seeming that it's the Obamanots who are the ones whose heads are not sort of tied, you know, to reality. They seem to be the ones who are out of touch because they don't understand the people with whom they're dealing with even though those people have made it very clear to them what the reality is. And so, you know, there's this weird dynamic in the memoirs that you see repeatedly. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up about the people they're dealing with. It kind of dovetails into a reactionary mind. And a lot of times the Obama people try to make the biologic kind of arguments with them. And these hypocrisy burns don't work because... What Republicans say they're after is not what they're after. So can you explain what the reactionary mind is? Well, um, let me just uh, slightly complicate what you said. I do think the Republicans are, in fact, quite open and conservatives are quite open about what they're after. And the reactionary mind, what it does is actually reads them and takes them quite seriously, um, going back several centuries to the reaction against the French Revolution. And the problem, I think, for particularly many contemporary liberals is that they don't know this tradition all that well, and they don't know how to read conservatives. But conservatives at their heart, and they again, this is, this is not a big secret for them. They're, they're quite uh, frank about this. What has always uh, been at the heart of the, 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 the conservative enterprise has been opposing uh, movements of emancipation by subaltern classes or subordinate classes going back to the French Revolution. Now, these movements of emancipation have changed across time. In, during the French Revolution, it was, it was commoners. It, during again, the struggle over abolition, it was people who were enslaved. Then afterwards, you have the labor movement and the women's movement and the black freedom struggle. So these movements change, but conservatives have always been in the forefront of opposing those movements. And at the heart of their opposition is a belief that hierarchy 
And this is a genuine belief. This isn't just a kind of material commitment on their part. It's actually a genuine, sincere belief that hierarchy and domination are necessary to create a good society, that there are certain people who are better people. They're more talented, they're more excellent, they're more noble, they're more virtuous, they're more everything, and that those people need to have power and exercise it over people who are less talented and less skilled and less virtuous. Uh, And that out of that domination, you will create a better society. That's really at the heart of, of the conservative vision. Oh, it's open, too, because when you watch Fox News or something, like they talk about how Elon Musk is better or superior and you hear all that. So it's actually open. And yeah, and for them, the hierarchy is just uh, as long as there is a possibility that somebody who's superior while being born in the bottom of the hierarchy can once in a while go up. Right. Yeah. So there's some, you know, and in fact, again, this goes back to the very beginning. Uh, Edmund Burke, who's considered to be the founder of conservatism and very much believed in a hierarchy and all the rest of it, was himself a striver and celebrated the fact that he had come from what was at the time perceived to be the margins. He was Irish born, which in England, you know, in the 18th century, yes. made you a real outsider. And he talked about his ability to move up the ranks and how important that was to rejuvenating the ruling class. So there's always been a commitment on the part of conservatives. I wouldn't say to meritocracy per se, but certainly to the idea of there being a kind of special few who are able to scramble up their ranks. And again, this is all very much um, out in the open. And so the problem, you know, with the Obama knots people, I mean, is, and, and, and they're not special in this. I think liberals over the last half century really have been quite confused about the right and what the right is up to, <sighs> is that they've really kind of misread the agenda. And, 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 and the reason the Republicans are so intransigent is not because they're irresponsible. It's not because they don't know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. They're just serving a different master, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I think... In some ways, Trump clarified certain things for some people. Um, I think the problem is, is that people think Trump is somehow outside of the mainstream of conservative uh, doctrine and so forth. And so people still fixate on that. But I think, you know, there's been some clarification and you see this in these memoirs, this sort of sense of disbelief and disappointment that Trump came along and kind of made a mess of Obama's legacy. And so what these memoirs are really about in the end are less the kind of what you see in standard political memoirs, which is, you know, telling you what happened and giving you some sort of sense of the narrative. And instead, they're, they're filled with homilies and lessons um, oh, yes. for, you know, the next generation of liberals and Democrats. And Dan Pfeiffer says this very um, clearly at the beginning of his book, that he sees this as a way of salvaging Obama's legacy from Donald Trump in a way of beating Donald Trump the next time around. And so these memoirs aren't just, you know, neutral observations about the past. They're very prescriptive about the future. And what's, you know, what's stunning is how little these people have learned that they still hold on to this, you know, West Wing vision of America and, you know, uh-huh. hope to, to be able to kind of steer the ship back. Okay. One thing that just drives me nuts again is they seem to value the style of Obama over 
actual substance, like how he didn't get single-payer passed and how in October of 2010 was when they decided that one month before the election, when they decided that they would—2008, sorry— one month before the historic election that they wouldn't even try for single-payer. And so what's your opinion on that? Well, so this is something um, that comes up in all the memoirs and also in this oral history uh, by Dan Abrams um, that I would really recommend. I I thought this was one of the very useful books. He interviewed, I think, upwards of 100 people who were in and around the Obama administration and what's what's fascinating to me is is that in all the memoirs and all this testimony, you see a repeated pattern, and it's not just on health care. You see this on Dodd-Frank. You see this on negotiations over the debt. You see it on the size of the stimulus package. And every time the Obama people find themselves in these negotiations where they're allowing either the Republicans or really, you know, far off centrist Democrats who are very close to the Republican Party in certain ways uh, to to set the agenda. And they negotiate and negotiate and negotiate. And in the end, they find out, you know, this isn't isn't getting us anywhere. But in the meantime, they've made concession after concession after concession. And then they finally pulled the plug. And so liberals often say against the left, you know, you don't understand uh, the kind of power these people had and all the rest of it. And there's certain truth to that. I mean, I don't think that's completely crazy. And again, it's not just the Republicans. It's, it's these much more moderate Democrats because they held a certain, you know, a lot more power when, and when the Democrats had total control over the Congress between oh, God, 2008 yes. and 2010. But what, the, what that the liberal defense fails to come to terms with is what the Obamanots say themselves, which is, I mean, this is coming from their own hand, words, which is what's most stunning is, you know, we've kind of wasted time. We gave too many concessions, and in the end, it didn't get us as much as we had, and we had to call the question in the end, and we had to cut some of these people out in the end anyway. Uh, but in the meantime, we gave up too much. And, and this is something that happens over and over again in this testimony. And so I think the story is a little bit more complicated, and I don't feel like liberal defenders of the Obama administration are listening to people in the Obama administration who are saying, yeah, we screwed up on this. But, and here's where I think the left also gets it wrong. I don't think that these people were just sort of, uh, and Obama in particular, I don't think they were just like bad tacticians and had bad strategy and kind of failed to fully understand. There is something at the heart of Obamaism itself. And as part of this piece, I read all of Obama's speeches uh, that have been published in, in a single volume, which I also highly recommend. And as well as Valerie Jarrett's memoir, which was the the one memoir that I thought was truly interesting and very revealing about how these people think about substance, not just about style. And I think once you start grappling with both Jarrett and Obama, who I think are pretty serious um, in how they think about this stuff, they're not frivolous. It's very clear that, you know, Obama, first and foremost, his conception of politics was very process oriented. You know, he had all this radical sounding rhetoric um, that people got very jazzed up by in 2008. But when you started parsing it very carefully, it wasn't about a transformation of society. It wasn't a fundamental overhaul of the economy. Um, What he really wanted to transform first and foremost was the way we do politics. He felt like things had gotten too polarized and he saw himself as a kind of great explainer. And that if we could just understand each other better, 
we could, you know, get further. And that, the, you know, the left's real problem is the same as the right. You know, that neither side is willing to compromise and understand. And so this, this was really at the heart of his vision. And, he, you know, he was very frank and, and, and forthright about it. I mean, just yesterday, I think on Twitter, oh, it, God. you know, he was being quoted, uh, you know, attacking woke Twitter and all the rest of it for, for not being willing to compromise. So, you know, this, is, this isn't just something, you know, he's not just being fashionable. I mean, Jonathan Chait, I think, tweeted about this yesterday, and I usually disagree with him about I'm everything. I'm blocked, but, usually, so I can't uh, read it. <laughs> well, he was saying, you know, this isn't just Obama trying to, you know, placate uh, white voters here. This is what he really believes. And I think that's true. I think that is what Obama really believes. And that's part of the problem here. So that's the first thing. The second is, which I think the left is pretty familiar with, is the kind of the neoliberalism that is at the heart of Obama's vision and is very much at the heart of Valerie Jarrett's vision. Yes. We spend a lot of time on that. But then the third thing, which I think we haven't really fully grappled with, is how much I call it moral minimalism. At the heart of Obama's vision was deliberately this desire to, to not do big things. There was, you know, a lot of grand rhetoric about doing big things, but at the heart of it, I think he saw the problem of George W. Bush and the Republicans during those years of the aughts. As their problem was that they tried to do big things and that what he was going to do was a different kind of politics that was about what he called small miracles. Uh, and I, I look at this, you know, hit this sort of part of his thinking that really emphasized small incremental changes. And again, this is why it's so funny when liberal defenders of him, you know, talk about how transformative a president he was. Obama didn't want to be a transformative president. He was very clear about this. He sees political transformation like that, that is really going to transform institutions and society as, as dangerous. Uh, and so he has a real commitment to a kind of uh, moral minimalism, moral smallness. Can you explain what Moral minimalism is, it makes sense, but I just think uh, more people need to get insight on this. Sure. So, um, as I said at the beginning of your show, you know, I'm a political theorist, and so this partially comes from um, political theory. In the wake of the 1960s and the 1970s, and by in the wake of those two things, I mean, first, the defeat of the various freedom struggles, the black freedom struggle, the women's movement, uh, and the labor movement. So that's on the one hand, you see the defeat of, uh, you know, a lot of left wing movements. And on the other hand, what you also see is the rise of the right, you know, first and foremost, with the nomination of Barry Goldwater, then the election of Richard Nixon and finally the election of Ronald Reagan. And in the wake of those two experiences, and then finally, I should say, the fall of the Soviet Union and the defeat of communism, Mm -hmm. many liberals began to reconsider how they thought about politics. Between the 1930s and the 1970s, this was a period of kind of, for the most part, I mean, I'm being somewhat simplifying here, liberal grandiosity, great liberal aspirations, a kind of transformation of society. And, you know, even the most mainstream liberals were pretty um, expansive in their vision. I mean, people, I think, who are younger and on the left forget this, but it actually is true. Between the 30s and the 70s, liberalism really was transformed in many ways in America. And it had this kind of very deep foundational commitment to rights, equality, and so forth. But in the wake of these defeats and the rise of the right, uh, many liberals began to reconsider and to think that it was precisely that grand aspirationalism and that deep foundationalism, this deep belief that you could create a society on the basis of freedom of equality and you know, universal human rights that they began to question and to feel like this was creating the seeds of a right-wing backlash. This was creating the seeds of 
government overreach. This was creating the seeds of a political society that was much too conflict ridden. And so what liberalism needed to do was to speak a smaller language, a quieter language. And in political theory, we call this anti-foundationalism or negative, negative liberalism or negative foundationalism. But that you ground your arguments in small, a set of smaller claims. You don't aspire to do so much. So suddenly, you know, words like, you know, tolerance become much, much more important. Pluralism, accommodation, mutual accommodation, compromise, and all these kinds of things. So much so that someone like Obama, just yesterday, as we were saying, he thinks that when he's saying that, he thinks that is the language of liberalism. That is the deep grammar. Um, and this is, this is a change in the kind of the last 30 years. And Obama is part of the generation that helped spearhead that change. So when I say moral minimalism, it's about a politics that's grounded on smaller truths, not grand aspirational truths, uh, but smaller truths that is much more concerned with mutual accommodation, that is much more concerned with averting the worst thing rather than trying to do something better. Uh, and you see this in a lot of Obama's speeches where he talks about, you know, where he says things like, you know, the, the care of a small child, tucking in your child at night, that's something you can believe in. That's something that you know is true. Despite all the other disagreements and the, all the other doubts we may have, that we know is true. And that's like at the heart of this moral minimalism. You take this experience of tucking in a small child and you say, this is universal. All, you know, all people feel this. Except for the ones whose children he killed with drone strikes. Yes. And yes, that, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of contradictions and hypocrisies built into this. But that is, you know, I think at the heart of, of, of the vision. And so anyway, that's what I really mean about moral minimalism. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So actually, when they say, um, like, even simple, moderate social democratic ideas are pie in the sky, they actually believe it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and what's so fascinating is, and I wrote about this last night on, on social media, is that, you know, there's a big fight in the Democratic Party now about Bernie versus, you know, Warren versus some other people. And, you know, when Bernie says he's socialist, people say, well, that's just New Deal liberalism. But what people forget is, is that those social democratic ideas, in fact, that was the left wing of New Deal liberalism. I mean, that was, that was um, kind of the common sense of the kind of liberal left in this country. And the right was so successful in fighting back against that, beginning in the 1940s, really, that we've forgotten about that. So now something like, as you say, single payer, universal health care, which is hardly, you know, the beachhead of a social, you know, a truly yeah. socialist society. Uh, almost every functional society has some sort of NHS system, most countries. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, are in some kind of, you know, guaranteed universal health care and, you know, they all do it, you know, different ways. But so anyway, um, but, you know, it's, it's amazing how the discourse has so shifted that these proposals, which, you know, again, used to be the common sense of, of, of left liberalism, um, which was pretty social democratic, uh, you know, now now they come to seem, they've now come in to stand, uh, they, they are now the stand-in, you know, for a kind of utopia, revolutionary utopianism. And so, you know, the, the grammar is the same, it's just, you know, the object is, 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 has shifted. What's funny to me is that uh, Obama, of all people, didn't he uh, take a swing at Hillary in 2008 during the primary for, like, not 
thinking big and transformational. Like, or I think, I think he said something like, you know, Ronald Reagan was yeah. a transformational president. Bill Clinton was not. Right. It's almost like Obama sort of dimly recognizes the problem at times. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, that's what here. I, in, in the piece, I mean, I'm glad you said that because in the piece, I really try to give Obama his due. I think he understands, he certainly understands himself better than many of his acolytes do. That's clear. And I think, you know, he was reckoning, you know, I, I don't think when he was speaking this moral minimalism, um, he was conjuring it out of nowhere. You know, he uh, grew up, he's slightly older than I am. I'm 51. I think he's, you know, late 50s. I can't remember, maybe 57, 58. So, but, you know, we're roughly, he's, you know, same, similar generation. And he, I, you know, when I hear him, I hear all the people I went to college with and graduate school with. And so he's speaking a language that is very pervasive among a kind of ruling class. And I think understood, you know, that this is, this is the way, this is the way we, you know, the ruling class thinks. And was also, but, you know, interestingly enough with Obama had enough of a sense of history to see how small it was and was aware of it. And, you know, uh, so I think he was much, a much more honest narrator and a much more straightforward narrator of what it was that he was doing. It was just that a lot of people didn't listen and pay attention very carefully to what he was saying. And so you have, you know, his defenders, you know, I think could imagined, you know, they're looking at it through the prism of this television show. And, you know, and, and so it's it, a lot of it is about image. A lot of it is about style. You know, they love the eloquence. They love the kind of knowledge. They love the commitment to science and reason. Oh. But 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 these are all um, these are all kind of irrational commitments. Not that it's irrational to be committed to science or reason. It's just with these people, it's like kind of a religion. It's more of a theology and it's more of a style, as I say, rather than the substance, because, you know, the yeah, reality like ends more than means for them, which is especially weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. Pod Save America has millions of dollars to press their content forward which includes riveting interviews where they convince Elizabeth Warren to take a DNA test. But we are not the crooked media. Help us keep the media uncorrupted by funding us through listener subscriptions. Go to historically.substack.com slash subscribe. One thing I did observe is that their need for approval and compromise only goes one way. For example, Obama went on Fox News, but he never went on TYT. It seems like they have a need for the right wing's approval. Why? So I think this is a, a much bigger, I mean, it goes to the heart of the question. I think the liberalism, the left liberalism that I was talking about between the 30s and the 60s slash 70s, was a liberalism that was overwhelmingly oriented towards answering the claims of the left. And the left was just much more powerful. Everything from trade unions to you know, the Communist Party, Popular Front in the 1930s and the 1940s, to the Black Freedom Struggle, to local politicians. I mean, there was a block that had some real power, and liberalism was transformed in response to that. The liberalism that we all know that has kind of come into its ascendancy since the 1970s 
has been overwhelmingly geared in response to the right. And part of it is a kind of gestalt shift, you know, change in beliefs among, among liberalisms, but, but among liberals. But part of it, I mean, we just have to come to terms with is that the right was more and more successful. Now, there's a kind of push-pull there, you know, because the two things, liberalism getting, you know, more moderate and the right getting more powerful are not unrelated to each other. They mutually reinforce each other. But I, I think embedded in contemporary liberalism, and you see this in people like Jonathan Chait, you see it in people like Obama, the, the kind of the superego voice, the voice, the, the voice that they always feel like they're responding to and answering is a voice from the right. When I was in college in the 1980s, it, it was the right that seemed to have all the ideas on its side. It was the right, you know, whose critiques everybody felt like they needed to respond to, and the left less so. I think that's begun to change, um, I should say, in the last couple of years. But again, this whole generation came up in a system where uh, it was the right that, you know, needs to respond. So someone like Ben Rhodes, who is uh, Obama's deputy national security advisor and wrote another lengthy memoir that I read, um, you know, he talks about this experience after 9-11 when he felt this surging feeling of patriotism. Oh, God. And, you know, was very excited and so excited um, that he went to meet with a recruiter from the military, from the army to sign up and then decides, you know, lo and behold, you know, military life's not for me. I'd rather be in a think tank. (laughs) However, what's (laughs) what's interesting there is that, you know, part of what inspires this patriotism and this nationalism is this tremendous hostility he has to the left, which is organizing protests against the war on terror. And, you know, here he is, however many later as this book came out, 17 years later, narrating the story without any sense of irony and any sense of self-reflection that the left was actually right. Uh, We were totally right to protest, um, not just the war in Iraq, but the war in Afghanistan and the war on terror. Oh, yeah. People forget that the Taliban agreed to hand over bin Laden on September 17th, 2001, and Bush rejected that offer. So the war in Afghanistan would have been unnecessary. You know, and, and I think regardless of the you know, specific moves that were happening there, what was very clear, and many of us did point this out and you know, were just dismissed, is that the Bush administration and the Republican Party saw this as an opportunity to do a whole kind of a bunch of things that they had long been wanting to do. First and foremost, you know, transform the executive branch of the president, you know, the executive branch, make it a much more centralized operation. Secondly, enhance a whole kind of imperial style of policing um, that had begun to happen again under Bill Clinton, and they really wanted to expand it. Third, you know, assault on civil liberties. They really, and, and, and finally, to find a mission for the U.S. Uh, U.S. militarism and power that had been sort of stumbling in the dark in the wake of the end of the Soviet Union. So this was all there and very transparent. It had very little to do, as heated as the emotion was, in the end, you know, the event itself of 9-11 proved to be much more important um, for the response than the event itself. Interestingly enough, I should just say just on this topic that Rhodes also says that when the Obama administration finally kills bin Laden, however many years later, you know, for Rhodes, he says, you know, nothing would ever feel this right ever again. You know, this is really the kind of capstone political experience Except for him. for the polio victims because they did the fake vaccine scheme and they put back polio 20 years. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's a strange gestalt because, I mean, when I brought up that more minimalism before you talked about, in you know, the importance of tucking in your child at night, you mentioned rightly, you know, but that doesn't seem to apply to, you know, the people who are the victims of these bombings and other, you know, by the U.S. and attacks uh, in other countries. And I think, you know, there's a weird thing that you see, and you, you see this very much in the Obama knots between this kind of like, do small things at home in domestic policy, and yet marry those small things at home with these kind of grandiosity of vision and rhetoric and of the, the passion, I call it, you know, the passion of the American state, um, <sighs> which is ultimately expressed for these people. You know, the thing that gets them the most excited and where they feel the proudest is things like, you know, taking out Osama bin Laden. When Obama announces this in his speech to the, the American public, he, he compares this to the, uh, the, the freedom struggle for equality for all citizens. And he says, you know, these are, it's all part of a continuum of American can-doism. Oh, God. Yeah. So, you know, for these people, like I said, this is really the summit of political experience. You know, they, they, this is really uh, where it begins and ends is, is that assertion of American power, um, hard power in the world. Uh, it's, it's where they feel, you know, most excited. And it's, it's a strange kind of rhetoric only in that traditionally, I mean, it's not that liberals weren't, didn't indulge in a lot of the language of patriotism, but if you look at, you know, the kind of the, you know, the new dealer language around world war two, you know, the expansiveness of the vision abroad was matched by an expansiveness of the vision at home. We now are in this world where the expansiveness of the vision of abroad is matched by, you know, the smallness of the vision at home. And that's, we've been living with that for quite some time. Are they consciously compensating for something or is that more, un, or, or, or is that more unconscious? Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, that gets into kind of deep psychology and I don't know that I can answer that. I, I try to read these things more politically <laughs> and historically. Sure. But uh, but it's it's been a long time in the making. I mean, you know, the Clinton era really was laying the seedbeds for this kind of stuff, you know, where you saw, I mean, people like Samantha Power felt like the United States had to kind of redeem itself, you know, through these bold assertions of moral principled action, you know, abroad, namely, you know, bombing Libya, you know, war. And it is interesting. I mean, I always thought it was fascinating. And I pointed this out at the time of the Iraq war. The very liberals who said, you know, George Bush was stealing the election, was was not democratic, was ruining democracy at home, believed that somehow or another George Bush was going to deliver democracy to Iraq. <laughs> um, and it's it's bizarre, you know, but they inhabit these two worlds and it's hard to know how to reconcile them. Actually, this reminds me of a blog post you wrote where... Nira Tandon lies to you about Palestine. It was like so bizarre because you linked the video and she still managed to lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was, that, yeah. This was an, one of the odder moments I've had on the Internet where you get into a fight with a very powerful person who just seems shameless about just not telling the truth. But yeah. So one thing is that after I, I haven't been through many presidencies, but I remember when at the end of the Bush presidency, no one was talking about the Bush legacy and no one was glorifying the Clinton legacy. But everyone was like, you have to vote for Hillary Clinton because of the Obama legacy. What is that glorification coming from? Well, I mean, I think, again, you know, if we're going to read them charitably, these are people 
if they're slightly younger than me, you know, for whom 9-11 and the Bush years were kind of a pivotal moment. And I mean, and this is a tendency that Americans have, which is that they think whatever the current regime is, is either the worst or the best that the United States ever had. (laughs) And in the process of always believing that, they end up revising their own experience of the past. And I wrote a piece about this for Harper's where, you know, I looked at various people who, you know, like Philip Roth, when he was interviewed about the Nixon administration right at the end of Watergate, he talked about it was like reading Dostoevsky every day. It was this horrible experience. And then 10 years later, in the midst of the Reagan era, he's kind of looking back on Nixon. He's like, yeah, it wasn't so bad, you know, next to Reagan, you know, Nixon's pretty good. And then, you know, George Bush comes along, you have the same thing about Reagan. And then you have now oh, God. The revisionism about George W. Bush. Uh, I- I have, like, uh, really hard memories from the Bush era, and I did a lot of research, and Trump even hasn't done one one-hundredth of the damage that George W. Bush has done. Well, it's certainly the case that the damage that George W. Bush did, that many people on liberals felt very strongly about, uh, initially they were, of course, many of them were supportive of the Iraq War, but when it became clear that the war was a total disaster that many of us said it would be, they turned and, and they act, you know, the greatest foreign policy disaster in American history, the worst thing that the United States has ever done. Da, 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 da. And, you know, so now Trump comes along and they've revised their view of the, of, of the Bush era. But, but all of that is to say is that, you know, that experience of the Bush era is, you know, the worst ever. I think, um, for many people, what they liked about Obama and the reason they celebrate him so much, is that no drama Obama, you know, that he brought a sense of calm to these people. I mean, clearly not to the country because the whole Trump phenomenon was burbling away. And not to the world. Uh, and not to the world. And they felt that he brought, you know, some semblance of, of reason and calm and all the rest of it and, you know, uh, made some changes. That they that if you just look at things in this kind of narrow way, were improvements. Of course, if you look at you know overall the overall statistics on inequality, the overall statistics on home ownership, all of these kind of measures, things have gotten you know have either stayed stuck or gotten demonstrably worse for people. And you know this is uh, this is the reality that we're that we're in. And so. But, I, you know, that's the kind of best, you know, interpretation is that, you know, uh, I can give is that they kind of had this traumatic experience of the Bush administration and now, of course, the Trump administration, such that, you know, whatever difference that can be brought in uh, is this sort of measure of relief. I mean, and I should say this was my experience of the Clinton administration, not my own personal, but I remember, you know, people talking about the Clinton administration in exactly the same way. People, you know, now Bill Clinton is persona non grata in part because of the Me Too phenomenon and people take more seriously what he did to Monica Lewinsky. And more. Yeah, no, no, but I mean, for for liberals, I'm saying, you know. Uh, Yeah. But they forget, you know, how much they loved Bill Clinton um, and how much they, you know, they thought he was a kind of political genius and a political savior who led us out of the wilderness of the Reagan years. What surprised me about the Clinton era was strangely how many feminist groups took Bill Clinton's side over Monica Lewinsky's side. That was I was a teenager back then, but that was very shocking to me. You know, I think the you know there's a couple of things going on there. One is is that uh, you know, there's a kind of uh, partisanship. I mean, there's just no other way around it. That's very strong, and you know, you fight for your team. 
no matter what. And many groups, you know, um, liberal groups are tied in with these administrations and, you know, it's, it's very hard for them to break. And then I think, secondly, you know, even though the Anita Hill case and other things had really put sexual harassment on the broader political map, I think the idea, the simple idea that relationships between um, higher-ups and subordinates in a workplace are not ideal spheres for consensual relations uh, exactly. of any sort is a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. And so, you know, I, I think our awareness of that is a little bit better now than it was back then. So, Absolutely. Um, and why is it that none of these Obama nuts, they've just sunk the Titanic and now they're building Titanic 2.0 and they're saying, go full speed ahead and use the iceberg as a ramp. Don't worry about the iceberg still. Like, why is it that they're not seeing that iceberg? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it's ironic because, of course, had, you know, let's say Sanders been the nominee in 2016 and lost, you can be sure, you know, we'd never be hearing the end of it on the left for those of us who supported him or somebody else. You know, In fact, they tried to transfer Hillary's loss to his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else, and they blamed, like, everyone else, like Putin, WikiLeaks, and Midwestern voters, Wisconsin. Uh, somebody even blamed Rain. <laughs> and if you read these memoirs, it's it's totally not surprising that they would do that because when they're when they're looking over their record while they were in power and all the things that they didn't achieve, they blame everybody else. They always blame everybody else. Uh, and I think, you know, part of this is, is, is like their sort of esprit de corps and their sense of, you know, the self that, you know, they really do have a sense of themselves as kind of virtuous blameless public servants who care about the public good in this completely uncompromising way. Uh, Even when, you know, as with that case of Ben Rhodes, who, you know, so cares about patriotism and serving his country uh, that he decides, you know, I'm not going to work in the military. I'll work in a think tank instead. You know, the, the, the self... The most dangerous job. Yeah. The self-feeling <laughs> that's going on there is so transparent and obvious to anybody and everybody except for him. And he shows no awareness of this at all. And I, you know, I just think there's a kind of a stunning um, sort of lack of self-awareness, honestly. They, you know, uh, they, and as you said, you know, if you believe the causes of the failure are completely external, whether it's Putin or whether it's Bernie or whether it's this or whether it's that, well, the answer to that is get rid of those things and, 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 and just double down on what you did do well, because that's right. And, you know, I think that's pretty much it. And, in some ways, I think we have to stop obsessing about them so much and, you know, just kind of push past them. And eventually, you know, they'll adapt. I mean, all ruling classes do. And if we can, dis- you know, if, if we can displace them. And that's really what has to happen, I just think, is building more and more power on our side. And, um, you know, eventually they'll, you know, they'll, they'll be pushed aside. Eventually they'll be like, I always supported Medicare for yeah. all. Yeah, of course. Kind of like with the Iraq War. <laughs> And, you know, that, you know, that'll be fine. Better that than, you know, them resisting it constantly. But, you know, there's a, an old uh, slogan from the Civil Rights Movement. Actually, I think it was the Black Panthers. Move on over or we'll move on over you. And <laughs> I think that's, you know, pretty much has to be the attitude on our part and not to get distracted too much with the games that they uh, and, the, you know, the, that they play. 
something happened during the Obama term where they've like very got this strange tokenized belief on races on race, and they actually do some sort of weird race fetishism almost. What caused that? So, I mean, I think, I, like I said, one of the big parts of the piece on the Obama Nazis is this memoir that Valerie Jarrett, who was Obama's senior advisor, she'd known the Obamas going way back in Chicago. And I found hers to be the only really interesting memoir, and not because she's I'm politically sympathetic. Uh, it's just that she's quite thoughtful about what she believes. And um, she served in the uh, administration of Harold Washington, who was the first black mayor of Chicago in the 1980s. And she really credits this moment as her moment of political awakening. Valerie Jarrett is black um, and uh, was, you know, kind of grew up during the 1960s, has a sort of more, more uh, has a different background than uh, many African-Americans in this country and that she was born in Iran and so forth. But, you know, that's getting us a little far afield. But in any event, she says, you know, that for the first time, she, she, you know, she finally felt like African-Americans were getting a voice with the election of Harold Washington, who is the black mayor, as I said, in Chicago. And what's interesting about that is that the project of electing black officials, you know, is an, is an old one in the African-American uh, freedom struggle. Uh, but in, you know, in the early 1970s, it was it, it really got renewed traction of electing black mayors across the country and black aldermen and and black uh, council persons and, and all that kind of black members of Congress. And there's a very famous moment at something called the Gary Convention, which is one of the big assemblage assemblies of, of black activists and black officials, where the mayor of Gary, Indiana, says, you know, um, we have this belief that if we can just elect black people, uh, we black people have this belief, you know, somehow or another, it's going to work. But the truth of the matter is, is that I, as the mayor, have very little power of the real forces that control our fate and destiny. Uh, namely capital, or that's one of the forces, power of capitalism. What's interesting about Jared is, so first of all, you know, she comes 15 years later and, is, you know, imagines, you know, that having a black mayor is, is, is really the kind of arrival of black people and they're going to have a voice and all the rest of it. Number one, which, you know, was an experiment that had already been tried and failed. But number two is how naive, I wouldn't say naive, actually, how much she believes that capitalism and capital is the ally of African-Americans in power. She really works very closely with private equity, with real estate interests to kind of siphon public resources off to them so that they can develop Chicago and quite sincerely believes that she's yeah. doing the public's work. And so I think right there you have the seedbeds. I mean, it, it, she's not the only one, but she's just a good example of, uh, of this marriage of very firm neoliberalism you know, using the market, you know, siphoning, privatization, all this kind of stuff. Very firm commitment to that um, in the name of the freedom struggle, in the name of African-Americans and people of color. And I think this actually goes very, very deep among, you know, this sort of mainstream democratic class. And so I think there's, you know, there's a long-winded way of answering your question. And, and then I, I, I am going to have to go after this. But um, it's to say that, you know, there's a very sincere belief at the heart of this uh, project, which is that, you know, neoliberalism is kind of the fulfillment of, of the freedom struggle and the fulfillment of the interests of people of color. And then it also gets deployed very cynically and instrumentally during electoral campaigns, the way we saw, you know, uh, with last time around with the Bernie uh, issue. 
I mean, you notice many of these people now support Elizabeth Warren, whose support in the black community is, is very low. Yes. Um, and, and the support in the Latino community is, 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 is low, um, certainly compared to uh, Sanders and even, you know, Joe Biden. Uh, you know, yeah. people overwhelmingly support relative to the other candidates, Joe Biden. Uh, so you see hear less of this, you know, who's the white person's candidate kind of a thing. Bernie got all the time. Many of these people just don't use that kind of language anymore. And so, like I say, it's a very um, it's both a very sincere belief on the on the one hand, and it's grounded in a kind of historical reality. On the other hand, it is deployed very cynically uh, and very instrumentally. And again, you know, this is why the left has to kind of avoid getting too caught up in this kind of cynical strategic deployment because it's it it it, it is it, it it can be a big distraction i think well for me what really i i did not understand how having a because trump won because of the white voters so if bernie like i didn't understand what was bad about having white people vote vote for you like it just seemed weird to me that's all yeah i mean it's it's just um and and there's a kind of very facile understanding about uh, race and racism and um, you know, but that's a, that's a that's a, a big and broader discussion. Of maybe course, I understand. Time. Yeah, um, th- thank you so much, Corey. You have a blog, right? Um, yes, I do. CoreyRobin.com. And everyone, please, I love his book, um, Reactionary Mind, and hopefully we can have you back on the program next year after I read your Clarence Thomas book. Great. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.